Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody. This is Steven Siegel at the New Books Network, and we're on the channel today, New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. My guest is Medina Tlostanova, who is a professor of post-colonial feminisms at Linköping University in Sweden. She has a a new book, uh, in fact, several books. Uh, We are going to be talking with her today about what does it mean to be post-Soviet? Decolonial art from the ruins of the Soviet empire, published by Duke University Press in 2018. Welcome, Professor Tlostanova, to our podcast today. Thank you very much, Stephen. Uh, I'm pleased and honored. Well, thanks for joining us. So a little bit about her um, Professor Tlostanova has authored 10 monographs, over 280 articles, which are published in several languages. Her focus is on decoloniality, feminisms of the global South, indigenous cosmologies, and post-colonialist sensibilities. Her most recent books, including the one we'll be talking about today, are Post-Colonialism and Post-Socialism in Fiction and Art, Resistance and Reexistence, published by Palgrave in 2017. Uh, and I understand that she has a new book in progress, which is authored with Tony Fry. It's called A New Political Imagination, Making the Case, which will be published by Routledge this fall in November 2020. So I'd like to start for our listeners, um, Medina, by asking you to describe what motivated you in this topic? What motivated you to write the book? Um, Actually, I have been working on this topic on and off for the last 30 years, I would say, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the topic in larger terms is an attempt to think post-Sovietness as a human condition, particularly in a situation when the condition changed almost overnight and millions of people were faced with the necessity of rethinking their lives and their future, and that was my situation as well. And in that sense, it's not that I got interested in the topic, but rather I would say I had no no choice. I was kind of forced to think about it. Um, And my trajectory as a scholar, my academic trajectory, in some ways helped me to come to this book, to writing this book. I was trained as an Americanist uh, in American studies. I was majoring in U.S. literature, and my early works were on that. Uh, Actually, both of my dissertations also focused on the U.S. literature. But the second one is already a move in in, in the direction of what I'm doing now, because I dealt with American multiculturalism, and the way it gets expressed in fiction, in contemporary literature. 
uh, and while working on this topic, I discovered for myself those relatively new areas of research that did not exist in the late Soviet academic system at that time, such as critical race studies, post-colonial studies, indigenous studies, gender studies, and so on. It was important for me uh, research-wise and also personally because I come from two minorities, from two ethnic groups that were uh, living in so-called Russian and later, we can say, Soviet colonies, racialized, non-European, predominantly Muslim groups. So I I have been always discriminated as somebody belonging to these groups in Russia as an internal other. And I was struggling to, to somehow come to terms with this positionality, to reflect on it, not in those prescribed terms, Soviet terms that we had you know, at our disposal, but also not entirely in Western terms that um, were important for me, but they did not necessarily work properly in relation to my local history. So for me, from the start, it was a reflection on the failure of the fake Soviet federalism and fake theatrical Soviet multiculturalism, on the inability of the Soviet system to cope with difference and diversity, on the abruptness of this shift uh, from the second world to the void, because this is how uh, many post-socialist authors and critics started to describe our positionality after the end of the Cold War, that we are the void. We are the non-region, uh, as the Eastern European scholars would say. And also, as someone born in 1970, uh, of course, you realize that the first 20 years of my life took place in the Soviet Union, and I belong to one of the many lost generations you can find there, right? Uh, right. When the USSR collapsed, I was barely 20, and I was also at the time in the U.S., uh, I was a Moscow State University student doing a study abroad program in the United States. And I think I have this anecdote in my book. So literally, I left one country and I returned to a completely different one. Uh, and then I think I started looking for the ways to reflect on this new condition, on this new existential situation we were entering collectively, but also in very different ways, depending on our intersectional situations, personal situations. Um, One obvious shift, for instance, for me was racism, uh, which stopped to be masked, because in Soviet times, of course, there were a lot of racists, you know, but it was masked under proletarian internationalist slogans. So one couldn't be openly racist, even if some of the biopolitics was openly racist, of course. Uh, And in that sense, I was not alone. There were many artists, writers, activists, journalists, filmmakers who attempted to conceptualize this post-Soviet human condition and also somehow deal with their proto-post-colonial sensibility that started to emerge uh, in very interesting ways with this post-Soviet duress, I should say. But there were no people in the 90s writing about this in Russian. I started doing it then. I published several books on the topic and many articles. But there was an interesting gap that I kind of observed even then. My fellow critics, theorists, academics, they refused to see or acknowledge this frame, the possibility even of this frame of looking at things. While contemporary writers were hungry for such a critique, 
In other words, for example, Andrei Volos, a Russian writer who is a typical case of a Russian post-colonial writer reflecting on his life in Tajikistan as a Russian other and fascinated with the Orient, or Afanasi Mamedov, a wonderful Azeri Jewish writer, realizing Russian language, experimenting with rhythms, with motives. They were interested and surprised, actually, to discover that they can be interpreted through a post-colonial lens, that their work with the same categories, concepts, metaphors as Salman Rushdie or Peter Carey does, without knowing it, without being exposed to the post-colonial discourse and canon. Uh, and also around that time, while becoming more uh, knowledgeable in post-colonial theory, I also realized, or I started realizing, that this theory works very well for the British Empire uh, and uh, for, for, the empire, for, for the colonies of the British Empire, but this, it does not quite work in the same way in the case of Russian Empire and its colonies and quasi-colonies. And also that post-colonial discourse uh, is too descriptive. And basically, it explains the exotic other to the same, to the West, using the language of the West, such as post-structuralism, post-Marxism. So I, I sort of started realizing that we needed to rethink the imperial colonial paradigm in relation to such empires as Russia and their colonies, uh, that they kind of fall out of the of the norm of the standard mostly yeah. anglophone norm you know uh, and and also luckily around that time i read one of the first works that relate to decolonial collective uh the so-called decolonial collective which is different from post-colonial theory and studies which uh, originates in latin america mostly of course, uh, now uh, the, the, the preeminent decolonialists, they live in the United States or in Europe, uh, but at that point, many of them still resided in, in Latin America. Uh, so um, I found it much more promising uh, in points of uh, reflecting on the post-socialism uh, and, and post-colonialism and the intersections. And around 2000, I started working with, with these ideas, and I started also collaborating with Walter Mignola, one of the preeminent decolonialists with whom we co-authored many articles and a book, have organized many events, uh, and also later with other people from the colonial group, which is becoming more and more international now, particularly in my case, of course, since I deal with feminism, with, with decolonial feminists like Maria Lugones, who unfortunately uh, has just passed away. Uh, so then, then came my monograph uh, on gender, on gender epistemologies and Eurasian borderlands, which already was written from the decolonial feminist perspective. And at the same time, I shifted from literary studies as such to a sort of anti-disciplinary, transdisciplinary mode in which I'm still residing and writing today. Um, right. So, so yeah, uh, I, I think that there was a combination of, uh, of this collapse of the Soviet Union and also my personal situation and as this internal other. I'm trying to make sense of it and looking at different theories that were at that point available outside the, the, uh, this uh, socialist space and Soviet space uh, and trying to see what, is it enough or do we want a different theory? That was the, uh, the point that kind of uh, yeah, triggered me, yeah. I think. I, I, I want to I follow up on a lot of things that you just said um, 
for our interested listeners, I'm intrigued, first of all, by your connection of the political and the professional here. Um, I love in the book how you described what you're observing as you're writing the draft of the book, um, the mm. protests on, on Tverskaya. There, there's actually a context to that, which I think is, is, is quite fascinating. I also want to ask you about a lot of the names of the writers and the artists who mm-hmm. will, um, some of whom will be familiar to our, our listeners. Um, I like the fact that you mention your um, American training and, and to some extent in the book, even working through the post-colonial canon again, um, writers like Franz Fanon or, or writers like du, du Bois and the double consciousness mm-hmm. um, idea. Could you describe your your context for writing. I know that you you seem to have written a lot of this in the early to mid 2000 teens. Um, there's also Alexander Itkin's book about internal the internal colonialized other. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. Well, as I said, uh, I started working with Walter Mignola, who is one of the decolonial theorists, and Walter works a lot with knowledge, with epistemologies, with decolonizing knowledge, let's say, and in the last 10 years with uh, with uh, aesthesis, as we call this, or like a, a, the aesthetic part of, of decoloniality. And I think that was initially that attracted my attention because I wanted to reflect on um, Russia, on the Russian Empire, both Tsarist Empire and the Soviet Union from this imperial colonial point of view. Uh, and as I said, there was no language in Russia for that. Still, there isn't any language for that even today. Um, so I got interested and there were several categories in the colonial option that I found fruitful. Uh, and I started developing them more. Uh, for example, one of such categories that uh, actually fits very well when we think about Russia is the imperial difference. Uh, and I don't think you can find this category in post-colonial studies, uh, which is, as we said, predominantly Anglophone and British empire-centered. Uh, what is imperial difference? Uh, it's, it's a difference between different sorts of empires, we can say, in different uh, um, you know, classes of empires or leagues even. Uh, and if, right. if we talk of modernity, if we look at modernity in a, in a wider sense, not only starting from the Enlightenment, but earlier from the 16th century, uh, from the discovery of Americas, right, from uh, the point which is important for the colonial option because it, cla- it claims, the, colonial, the coloniality claims that uh, modernity starts uh, precisely at the point when Columbus uh, goes to the New World, right? And when uh, capitalism, early forms of capitalism, Christianity, uh, and the, the invention of race in the way we know it now come together. Uh, and uh, th- this is uh, like the, the point that triggers modernity into being. Uh, so so uh, if we take this frame then uh, in the imperial difference is the difference between the empires that are constantly um, uh, rivals of each other, right? Uh, and in modernity, in the first two centuries, uh, it's uh, Spain, it's Portugal, uh, it's Italy that are leading the game, so to say. But then, uh, as we know uh, from history, they are displaced by the British Empire, by France, 
uh, today by the United States, of course, uh, which uh, is again an interesting case that because it starts as a colony, right, but then becomes very much a proto-imperial state. Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, and in this frame, if you take this frame, what is Russia then? Russia is a very strange kind of empire. It's an empire that is constantly trying to catch up and leave behind the West, right? So it's trying to uh, make itself uh, accepted into the, this first league of empires, and it never succeeds. And from the start, uh, within um, the world system, so to say, the economic and social system, uh, Russia, Russia is, is uh, very much a second hand, a second rate empire, we can say. And that is important because it creates uh, a, an area of complexes, an area of uh, dualities, an area of very strange kind of um, uh, divisions. Uh, because uh, I, I, in, in my early works, I even called it a Janus faced empire meaning that it has one mask or one face looking in the direction uh, to the West and a different face looking in the direction of its uh, Asian colonies or Caucasus colonies, for instance, right? Uh, and, and I think that is very important to understand uh, when, we, when we speak about uh, Russia uh, uh, in imperial sense. And this is something mm -hmm. that we still can see even today. Uh, because I right. think that a lot of today's reactions and very unhealthy kind of, you know, behavior <laughs> that we see there is also yeah. actually very much within the same logic, right? Okay, we are not accepted as, as somebody from the first league, and then we will behave in this way. Right. And I, yeah, right. so I, I, I totally see this in politics today there. The, the, story, the story from wounded pride to aggressive patriotism is, is it's a, it's a very common story in a short path, one might say, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Could, could you, could you tell us how you decided to arrange the book? It, it's, it's such a clever arrangement, I think, because you have a number of early chapters, which are very heavy in theory, mm -hmm. where you're talking about the position of the post-colonial subject. And then I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated that you have so many groups, activist or, or artivist groups um, who, who have become radicalized or, or perhaps some are, are not quite as radical as they imagine themselves to be. And then toward the end of the book, you have a number of um, wonderful interviews with, with artists, um, both young and old. So uh, what is the arrangement of your book chapter by chapter and how did you decide to do uh, thank you for this question. Actually, I struggled a lot with this arrangement because, you know, on the one hand, I've been writing so much about the same topic or similar topics that I didn't want to repeat what I've already done before. Uh, so the idea was to kind of condensed, condense theory uh, uh, into maybe a shorter kind of amount of yeah, the smaller amount of chapters. Uh, so that's what I tried to do. Uh, and at the same time, since the book was actually commissioned uh, by um, Duke University Press and the two uh, serious editors, uh, Walter Mignolo and Catherine Walsh, who have started a, a new series on decoloniality. And this is the second book in the series. The first is written by themselves and is called On Decoloniality. So when we were discussing this, they, they told me that they would like the book to be very short, very accessible, not very academic, and 
and, and kind of interesting for wider audiences, right? And that is always difficult because the colonial theory is not an easy thing. So it's a challenge to right. explain yeah. this, you know, in like 20 pages. And also not to repeat yourself all the time. Uh, and that's why I think I thought that maybe um, this way of talking with people and being more humble as a researcher, you know, and not like preaching there and giving your opinion, but rather listening to people and trying to see what they think is probably more interesting in this case and more fruitful. So I intentionally designed it as low-key, not overtly theoretical or abstract. Uh, and um, I was trying to take this in-between position and find an entry point into the topic intersectionally, historically, dynamically, uh, and listen to these people. You know, and, and of course, I have to say this, I know most of these people, many of them I know personally, especially mm -hmm. the artists we've been friends for many years or collaborators. Because I think it happened with many of us, uh, those dealing with literature, with, with uh, verbal arts, you know, that are becoming more and more obsolete these days. Uh, and I found myself about 10 years ago um, writing much more about arts, actually, visual arts and different kind of uh, modern contemporary arts. And um, I, I actually do a lot of that. I write a lot of texts for artists, for catalogs, for, you know, like artist books, for the exhibitions. And sometimes we have long and heated discussions with these artists. When they come up with a new idea, they can call me and we discuss it for, for many hours. And that is very good for me as a researcher uh, because, uh, you know, it's we kind of come to certain ideas in the process, uh, you know. I, it's not like I have only the finished product and I can analyze it, but I can actually see how this artist came up with this or that idea and made this or that project. And it's also good for them because when they listen to some theoretical yeah. stuff, then they come up with absolutely brilliant projects and uh, video arts, and some of them are described in this book. Um, so I think that was done intentionally Although I was very hesitant at first, you know, and I was thinking as a, as a good academic, you know, making fun of myself here, uh, that <laughs> people would say like, oh, she's just lazy. She didn't want to write a real book. And so she put all these conversations. But I find them really interesting. At least for me, yeah. the, 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 the most fun part of the book, you know, to talk with these people and listen to what they have to say on the topic. Yeah, and, and um, let me come back to the conversations that you have with mm -hmm. the artists in the later chapter. Mm -hmm. Can can we profile? I, I know it's it's so highly selective. Like if if you're you know picking writers for an anthology of post-Soviet literature, I think in in many ways it's a struggle to pick representative artists from Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan. It's, it's terrible to have to do that because you leave so many people out. Mm -hmm. But can you give our listeners maybe three, four, five examples of artists who, who have really been transformative um, with their products and, and with their writing and with their influence? Um, and, and in particular, my question is about the feminist aspect of their art, plus, let's say, the the decolonial aesthesis that you talk about. Mm -hmm. um, would would you be able, um, especially given the position of the post-Soviet subject and the, the very self-aware and self-conscious 
position of Central Asian artists to give us and our listeners an, an example of the most creative projects that you have seen that you've picked up on in, in say, the past past several years? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you're you so right that it's hard to kind of select uh, who to talk about because there are many at the same time um at the same time i would say that uh, especially if we talk about the colonial aspects uh it's still a new thing especially in central asia right. and i think that everywhere it's picking up late you know it's interesting that when i was still in russia like seven years ago and i kept writing about these things People still didn't understand what I was talking about. I mean, there, there were some followers, but they didn't really understand. But now there is a new generation. And uh, this new generation of younger people, even within Russia, they write to me. They ask me to, to give talks, you know, they interview. Uh, because now I think they discovered uh, this decoloniality for themselves, and many of them are artists also. Uh, so now it's picking up, and uh, I see this also in Kazakhstan. I see this even in Uzbekistan, in in in, in a even more kind of a restrictive and police kind of states, uh, and in the Caucasus uh, as well. For example, um, in 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 Kazakhstan and, and generally in in Central Asia. Uh, one of my favorite, very, very feminist uh, artists is Saule Suleimanova. Um, and I uh, discovered her by chance. I was just, you know, leafing through some old magazine uh, and I, I saw her face and, and some of her works there. And I read an interview with her and I just wrote a letter to her just like that without knowing her. And we started talking and exchanging ideas was like 10 years ago. Uh, and she's wonderful. And I think she came to many of these decolonial ideas, ideas of decolonizing, um, uh, you know, aesthesis and uh, the canon, right, questioning the canon that was enforced uh, uh, and, and uh, made obligatory for Kazakhian artists during the Soviet rule and also the kind of uh, uh, neo-colonialist and nationalist canons that are again, being imposed on them today by the, the new rulers. Uh, so she was doing it absolutely without any knowledge of the coloniality. That was her own kind of intuition that brought her there. Uh, and she's also fascinating because she's very, very openly feminist uh, and, and, and feminist in her own interesting ways. I would say indigenous and kind of uh, Kazakhian ways because she's aware of the previous traditions that are there, you know, and that, that were almost uh, completely silenced by the Soviet coloniality. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that in her family, there are several generations doing that. Uh, and only now it's possible to see it. Because, for example, her mother was also uh, uh, an ethnomusicologist in Soviet years. Uh, who was studying the indigenous kinds of Kazakhian music. And now her young daughters, uh, both of her daughters actually, younger and the, the elder, uh, are activists and artists at the same time. One of them is a filmmaker, and the other one is a is an artist uh, who recently made a very interesting project that I just learned recently about. It's called Decolonizing the Kurt. And Kurt is like a kind of a Kazakhian traditional food and so she made this really interesting project. Uh, yeah, so it's 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 all there now. Uh, and um, among the North Caucasus artists, is of course a Taus Mahachva, 
uh, who is very, very famous, and her works are now all over European museums in permanent collections. I always find it in different museums here. Uh, and super, super, sorry, super Taos, right? Yeah, super Taos. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah could, could, could you could you could you explain what that is? Well, uh, that is an interesting story, also, uh, because uh, w- what is interesting about Taos is that she is the opposite of this stereotype of ethnic art or you know some kind of uh, Orientalist art that a lot of people still kind of associate with indigenousness and this kind of stuff, uh, because she has a brilliant education and she knows everything about contemporary art and she's very ironic and very kind of tongue-in-cheek you know um, when she does this and and so she takes a, a stereotype of a superman right uh, which you can find in uh, popular in, in mass culture uh, which you can find in different media uh, and she kind of uh, works with it in in a in a very interesting way for gender right because she 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 uh, remakes it into a superwoman uh, and also the superwoman comes from from Dagestan from her native land right and yeah in, in the Caucasus uh, so uh, and what I like about Taos also is that in many of her performances it's herself it's not some actors that she hires but it's actually herself who does that so in this case, it's herself who's playing this Taos superwoman from the mountains, uh, who is a feminist, uh, who is very kind of uh, sure of herself, of course, um, and uh, who uh, does all these wonderful things. Like I think in my book, I discussed the, the time when she finds a, a huge uh, uh, rock in the road and she just removes it while uh, men are standing there and just looking at her. Yeah, and then there was another one in Pompidou Center that uh, actually was uh, a continuation of that role where she was uh, walking around the Pompidou Center in Paris uh, carrying a huge sculpture on her back. Uh, and it's always also a feminist story because it, it's it's very, very much um, kind of, uh, yeah, comes from feminism, from intersectionality. Uh, and, and I mean, if we speak of intersectionality in the American context, of course, we are aware of the fact that it comes from African-American women, African-American feminists. And in this case, of course, where would it come from? It comes from people who are the national minorities in the Soviet Union, like this Kazakhian artist or this uh, Avarian Dagestani artists. Uh, so I think, yeah. yeah. Or, or, or in your, your third chapter, you have... Um, an interview with Lena C. Oh yeah, right, v- visual artist, and and yeah. also I think a, a very um, interesting and dynamic photographer and feminist thinker. Could could you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about her and how you came across her work? Yeah, Lena is also amazing. She's really amazing. I didn't know her personally, but I got acquainted from one of through one of my colleagues here in Linköping, who is also an Estonian uh, young scholar. Um, Redi Kubak and my co-author, we wrote many, many texts together. And her dissertation was about uh, Estonian contemporary women artists. And she introduced me to Lina. Uh, and I was fascinated with her works. And then we started meeting in Tallinn and discussing things. And then she even came to Moscow when I was organizing a, an event in the Moscow Museum of Contemporary Art. And she gave a wonderful, fascinating talk. 
And what uh, attracted me again was uh, a very interesting combination in in Lena, because on the one hand she is very feminist, and many of her uh, pro- pro- projects they they explicitly deal with this. For example, my favorite one is called A Woman Takes Little Place. <laughs> And uh, yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's really wonderful. And it's very ironic and very critical of what's happening in Estonia today. Because Estonia is very proud of belonging right. to Europe, of course, and we all know that, you know, how, how painful it is for, 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 for Baltic literal. Uh, and at the same time, uh, it's one of the countries, uh, as Lina discovered, uh, and that's how the project came to be, uh, where the gap, the salary, the wages gap between men and women is one of the highest, or if not the highest in Europe. And when this was discussed at the parliament, one of the parliament members, uh, you know, stood up and said, yeah, but women don't need it as much as men do. So they don't need to be paid the same. <laughs> uh, and and mm. so she listened to that and she started this, uh, all, it's a very long, it's a, actually it's an ongoing project, I think, with making pictures, taking pictures of women who are working and living in constrained conditions. So it's amazing because she has like hundreds of photographs of different women who are actually having this, you know, and, job. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she, and, and sorry um, mm-hmm. to interrupt you, but mm-hmm. sorry, she seems to be really interested in factories. So uh, how, how does her work let's say in 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 the medium that she specializes in, in, in visual arts and photography bring a kind of decolonial sensibility to to labor of people in factories i mean why why is she interested in that yeah it's a, it's a very good good question we discussed it with her also many times i think that uh, uh like in my case it also comes from this soviet childhood you know because uh, she remembers uh, how she lived as a child and as a teenager in this soviet kind of conditions and uh, uh, of course, she looks at it from her specific Estonian perspective, right? Uh, and and uh, how all this occupation, the Soviet occupation, uh, was again imposing this sort of factories uh, in the country where probably people didn't think they needed it or not this way. Uh, and and how she felt about it or how her parents look at it, you know. Uh, and uh, also this uh, this enforced collectivity uh, top-down collectivity that was again enforced and uh, imposed on everybody uh, on everyone in Soviet Union, and particularly in um, places like Estonia, uh, which of course uh, objectively, let's say, if we take if we accept the modern terms, was more developed than the rest of the country, right? That's why in Soviet Union people used to say that if you go to Estonia, it's almost like going to the West because it was so different, even from Moscow. Yeah. Um, in a Scandinavian paradise, right? Absolutely, yes. Uh, so she remembers that. And um, she's, she's very critical of that, as I am. And skeptical, but at the same time, I remember when I was talking at one conference in Estonian, a feminist conference, she asked me a question. She said, yeah, but today we are left with neoliberal model. And we kind of rejected not only Soviet Union and its occupation, but we also rejected other things like coalitions, for instance, or solidarity. We completely forgot about it because we associated it with Soviet Union, and that might, might be wrong. 
And so I think her secret interest also, maybe indirect interest in factor is, is also that. Uh, it couldn't be a place of not just where people feel bad and are exploited, but can it also be a place where these solidarities can reemerge somehow? Or, or, or it cannot. So it's a, it's a question. It's an open question for her. But for that reason, she went to China to do some research. You know, she does a lot of such things in Estonia, and also because she deals a lot. And that's another thing that I like about her. She deals with uh, lots of people who are kind of contemporary underdogs of different kinds, you know. Uh, for example, people in the sex industry. She has several projects with with those. And uh, it's very unusual for Estonia because, you know, Estonian post-Soviet, post-socialist project is all about, as you said, joining Scandinavia as soon as possible <laughs> and forgetting about being post-Soviet. Uh, but in her case, I mean, she is interested. She would go and interview, for example, all of the sex workers and most of most of whom are Russian, of course. Uh, and, and that is an interesting twist. Uh, and race comes into the picture then, right? Because you can see that these Russian women who uh, completely lost their status as colonizers there, right? And they have these bad jobs. They are these precarious people and they have these, uh, you know, precarious positions. And so she's interested in those people also, not because she feels sorry for them, but because she, she, she's trying to have a broader view, you know, not just to concentrate on one national or nationalist narrative, that is kind of at hand there. And I think in, in that sense, yeah, that's, that's why factories uh, and this kind of uh, machine existence uh, and um, repetition, that is another motive that you can find in her a lot, uh, which of course is connected with factories as well, right? Yeah. I want to be absolutely fair to um, the other features that you have in the book in your chapters four and five. Um, and I, I really hate appending ethnic labels in the old Soviet way and, and maybe even in an American multicultural mm -hmm. way. Um, but in, in some ways it, it seems kind of unavoidable and, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but in the last two chapters, four and five, you have a feature of Vyacheslav Akhunov who is an extraordinarily important Uzbek artist, although the label just doesn't capture really anything. Um, it does and it doesn't. And then there's Afanasy Mamedov. Did mm -hmm. I pronounce that correctly? Afanasy, yes, Afanasy. Afanasy. Mm -hmm. I, I guess both Azeri and Jewish, but you know he was born in, in Baku and he moved to Moscow. Um, my question is is not just about their art individually, but let's say as a kind of generational narrative. Um, you mentioned the importance of contemporary art in Central Asia and and how it was repressed and how the initial um, ex exhibitions were so important in the two thousands. So where where do you place these two Akunov and Mahmedov historically? And, and how, how do you see them contributing to the embodiment, as you say, of, of the post-colonial and post-socialist? Yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you. It's a very good question. I think that you're right. These two people, they, they are from older generation. Yeah. Uh, and right. so they don't really fit so well 
And uh, in contrast with these women artists that we mentioned before, probably, of course, they deal with post-colonial themes and topics and concepts, but uh, very often unintentionally or, you know, intuitively they come to them. And uh, this is not the center, the focus of, of, of their attention, at least in case of, of uh, Ahunov. Uh, uh, because Ahunov actually was a very, as you said, very well-known and famous and important figure in underground uh, already in Soviet times and uh, had problems because of that, you know, and was persecuted and still is even today. Uh, and I think that for him, uh, he's a, a fascinating author, very versatile, you know, and the kinds of projects he does is amazing. But I think for him, the Soviet project is still very important. He cannot get over it, uh, if I may mm. say so. <laughs> so yeah. that's why I think I think that's fair. I think that's very <laughs> fair. And, Although, and honest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we are friends again, and I, I interviewed him several times, and, and he's amazing. But I think it's still very important for him to deal with these images, you know, of Sovietness. Uh, although for others that, that are mentioned in the book, it's it's not anymore. And and they can play with it in any way, of course, but it's, it's somehow... Um, you know, it came to it became an element of style, maybe, right? But not not like something that you have to deal with, uh, not something that you have to fight with, even. Uh, and I think that he falls. I mean, Lahuna falls more into this generation of dissidents uh, that is very well known in the West. Uh, and what I mean by this is that um, I think Jennifer Suchland has a book on that, an American uh, author, feminist, and also specialist in, in Russia and post-socialism. She, she describes that very well in one of her works, I think, when she says that a lot of dissidents, they were uh, inadvertently racist and they were totally blind to these differences, you know. And, and for them, the ideal was the West because they had this dreadful Soviet Union and Soviet experience, right? And so for them, the ideal of freedom was to, to go to the West in that direction. Uh, and, and that's why, for example, initially, when we talked with, with Vyacheslav Afunov, uh, he was uh, uh, kind of not skeptic, skeptical, but he couldn't really understand uh, when I was criticizing Western modernity or something, because he's still there, you know, in that paradigm in which mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a duality, it's a binary of either the West or the horrible Soviet Union. And when you try to, to com complicate it a little bit and add other nuances, then it's, it's more difficult for them to deal with it. Uh, but at the same time, having said that, he has totally post-colonial works and anti-colonial works uh, in which he realizes and tries to show to us that he has become this new post-colonial sort of goods, you know. Uh, it's not coffee and, uh, as they used to sell in these colonial stores before, you know, but it's more like uh, artists today because it's, a, it's, it's actually an artist who is orientalized and whose work is orientalized and sold uh, to the global art market in that capacity. Uh, and he is allowed to do certain things to be liked and to be bought and, and to be kind of, you know, accepted into, into this contemporary art. And he is not allowed to do anything else. And in a sense, to me at least, this repeats the Soviet uh, kind of logic, but on a larger scale, on a global scale. Because in Soviet Union, it was very similar. If you were a national artist, so to say, coming from national republics, 
you were not actually allowed into this elite club of artists you know mm. you, you you had to do your own stuff and that's why there was this horrible formula uh when you had to be national uh, in your form and socialist in your content uh so you had to kind of yeah, yeah follow that uh and in that sense yes i think it comes still from that generation uh and um uh Avanasi Mamiadov is a bit different and i agree with you that i hate these ethnic labels but sometimes it's not possible to do without them because the label allows us to glimpse into the trajectory of this person and see why you have all these elements why it's not just uh, a writer living in moscow because for the last 20 or 30 years uh, afanasy lives in moscow right and you can just ignore the fact that he's afanasy mamedov but even his <laughs> name uh, is already very telling for anybody in Russia. People start laughing when they hear that name because Afanasy is a very traditional Russian name that nobody has has used since the 19th century. Okay, mm-hmm. there was this Afanasy um, uh, famous kind of a book from I think uh, 17th century or something uh, uh, where uh, a traveler was going to India, you know, and his name was Afanasy Nikitin. Uh, and so that's where the name comes from. And Mamedov is a typical Muslim-sounding Azeri name, uh, you see. And, and, and I think that that's how Afanasi found actually his voice when he realized that if he's writing within this uh, kind of colorblind uh, Russian language uh, literature or fiction, uh, he will not, not be able to create anything interesting. And, and he's, yeah. he tried to recreate this Bakinian uh, language, the Bakinian Russian, the intonations, the sounds, the, the you know the textures, the, the the smells, everything, and this is a very post-colonial feature, of course, that you can find in many post-colonial novels, and also the, the plays, these this games with language, and playing on language, uh, and using uh, some kind of non-standard, non-literary forms of Russian that he does brilliantly, and and uh, I mean. I've known all of his works, I've read all of his works, and I think that when he forgets about this and when he starts writing not about Baku and not about this transculturalism and multiculturalism and creolite, then it becomes bland and, you know, it loses something very important, uh, actually. And so uh, in that sense, it's important, although I do agree with you. Uh, And, uh, for example, when I write fiction myself and people try to analyze my fiction in in the Caucasus and they call me a Kabardian writer writing in Russian, I hate it because I don't want (laughs) to be pinned to this kind of... (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. And and, and I I think that's extraordinarily important because of the debates happening really right now in 2020 with color colorblindness and visibility. We're living at a moment of Black Lives Matter and this so-called, and I think really stupid Russian Lives Matter. I think I can say that on the air. Um, you know, but at the same time, there, there's some very serious Russophobia, which is there in, in Europe and, and especially in the United States at the moment. So I want to use this as an opportunity to ask one more question of you, um, because in, in your conclusion, you're suggesting pluralisms, right? I, I think you you talk very very um, uh, very well about the different geo. I'm quoting you now: the different geopolitics and corporal politics of knowledge, being, and perception. 
Um, and in your conclusion, your last couple of sentences, I will quote further, multiple dependencies and intersections of oppression require a complex purification in which the affective mechanisms are no less but more important than rational arguments. And the decolonial art on which I main, mainly concentrated in this book acts as one of the most powerful agents of decoloniality and provides promising ways to prepare for and build the future. This is so optimistic. Can you share your optimism with our listeners? What, what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> well, actually, I'm not that optimistic. And I think that uh, in the first part of the book, when I talk about this futurelessness and uh, futureless ontology, it's pretty grim, right? Uh, but I was, I was actually trying maybe to be cautious and uh, to find some kind of hope, at least in art. Because I'm, I'm not talking about politics there. I'm more talk, kind of concentrating on artists uh, and on the, um, um, you know, the agency that we can find through art and in art. And of course, I'm not so naive. And I, I, I don't think that art can change much in Russia. Uh, but at least we have these kind of people, you know, who are doing these projects. And uh, uh, many of them are also activists, uh, yeah, artists and activists, as I was also trying to show. Uh, and, um, of course, the situation since I wrote the book uh, has not improved. It has actually worsened, I think, because many of the people whom I uh, meant when, when I was writing about with whom I communicated, they are, um, you know, imprisoned many of them were detained during all these protests because you know the protests continue in russia uh so the situation has not improved but um uh, what what gives me some hope is that there, there are more and more younger people uh like some of the artists and activists i talk about who are serious about this critique you know and who don't have this binary sort of thinking, black and white thinking anymore, uh, who are open to other options. And I'm not trying to say that the colonial option is the only way to go. No, there are many different options. And uh, this is just one possibility. And I was not looking at the whole kind of picture of all arts and all fiction. No, I was just trying to look at this decolonial trajectory and where could this bring us if we look at Russia. And uh, right. to be right. to be honest, I think that Russia has to go through. I mean, it will go through very serious challenges, you know, and it's on the verge of collapsing maybe again. And that is something that I was also trying indirectly to say in the book. I think that um, after this thirty years of post-Soviet existence, we come to another moment uh, when it's on the verge of collapse, like Soviet Union thirty years ago. And 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 what what are you working on now? I know that you have a book in progress. Is it Impress, the book with to, um, a mm -hmm. new political imagination making the, the case? Could you could you talk about your current interests and research? Yes, I will say a few words because this is my uh, favorite thing now, as usual. You know, the, the latest book is the favorite. Um, Tony Fraser is a, is a fascinating person. He is a design philosopher, a cultural theorist, writer, award-winning designer from uh, Tasmania. And uh, he also runs, uh, runs a studio at the edge of the world in Tasmania. Uh, and uh, why I was attracted to him, because Tony, uh, being a designer and design thinker, he, he uh, always thinks not about not only about theories, but also about how to actually implement these theories. 
Uh, and uh, a lot of things that we work on are connected with real projects that could be done in different parts of the world. So the book actually opts for the making of a new political imagination and offers first a critique of existing political institutions, philosophy, practices that are totally unable to provide uh, the means and leadership to deal with, uh, with the crisis, with this complexity of the crisis that we have uh, in specific locales, but also globally. So we try to talk about you know, geopolitical conflicts and complexities, about the climate change, uh, about what Tony calls uh, very fittingly unsettlement. I love the concept of unsettlement uh, because it, it is a very concrete thing that in, in, in this century, uh, many millions of people will have to be to become unsettled in physical sense because it will be impossible to live in the places where they live now, like, I don't know, not to, to, to go far, uh, like Miami, for instance, yeah? like, like cities that will be flooded and it's actually impossible to do much about it, so they have to be relocated. But it's also a sense of unsettlement in an existential sense that I think many of us share today. And I think COVID-19 crisis was a very good example of that. Uh, because even people who are privileged and sitting in their apartments and having from home, you know, uh, this opportunity of, of having to work from home, uh, they um, also experience this unsettlement and this uh, kind of uh, um, detachment, the, the loss of anchors uh, in, in your life. Uh, and, and so we kind of visit all these things and we make clear that... Um, there is also a fundamental disjuncture between the complexity of this crisis and the knowledge that is compartmentalized, knowledge that is kind of crammed into disciplines that are unable to work together because uh, knowledge is derelational, as we argue in the book, uh, and that is very bad because it does not allow us to even come uh, to understanding, to start understanding what the crisis, the complexity of the crisis is about. And then, of course, we devote most of the book to the politics and why politics, even in democratic countries, fails to uh, address these challenges and, uh, and start kind of reflecting what could be done in this situation. Uh, so it's a book that is very open-ended and has many, many questions, but at least it tries to formulate what other questions that we need to um, address collectively. Yeah, I, and I, I think this is a, a perfect um, moment to thank, thank you for your inspiration in this book. Um, I, I sometimes feel like I, I want to rise from the ruins of an empire, but I don't want to build another empire, and I'm not sure where to go. And and I, I think your book provides so many different alternatives. Um, there are trajectories, as you say, but in some ways those trajectories are have to have to be placed along what has come before. Um, and and I really see this uh, as a promising moment. Um, despite the repressions of, of artists and activists, there, there's certainly more work to be done. And mm -hmm. I want to thank you for, for writing this book um, with that aim, to that end. Thank you very so, much, Stephen. Uh, we, we've been speaking here on uh, the New Books Network and New Books in History and uh, the podcast channel New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies with Professor Medina Tlostanova. She is the author of what does it mean to be post-Soviet? Decolonial art, 
from the Ruins of the Soviet Empire, published by Duke University Press in 2018. Thank you so much, Professor Tlostanova, for joining us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure.